Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and I'm pleased to welcome Carmel McDonald Graham, author of Personal Effects. Carmel has been a teacher of literature and creative writing, has had short fiction, poetry, critical essays and reviews published in journals, periodicals and anthologies in Australia and North America. And she's had three stage plays performed. Carmel, welcome. Thank you, Maggie. Now, before we begin chatting, I'd like to have authors read a little from their books just to give listeners a taste of their work. Um, Can you please read to us a little bit from Personal Effects? Sure. Uh, This is from later in the novel, um, when Lilith is thinking back over her earlier life her, her parents, at her parents' home in Cervantes. Um, I stand back now and examine my homemaking this time. In the windows, moonlit snow falls on and on. Another midnight with me gazing out at the oddly familiar and unfamiliar city of Calgary while I lose myself in thoughts of old friends here and down at the planet's base where I have them lapped warmly by the Indian Ocean. I had forgotten what a monochrome place this is in winter. Missing my garden at one moment, my thoughts had led through the snow to lilies, to remembering how they used to flourish in spillage from a tank tap at Cervantes. My mother let them have the damp patch that always seemed to be there. They burst from under the tank, leaves deep green and rubbery, white velvet flowers reaching for sun, the white, white light of them. My father would mutter about noxious weeds and danger to the cattle. The cattle don't come anywhere near here, she would say. So he grumbled about wasted water instead but he only reinforced fences more more carefully, laying down the law about gates more vigorously. That waste produced perfect white blooms soaking light into life, cupping it, pulling it in the depths of their white leaf-like petals. Surely it means something cannot be worthless, surely, and nothing necessarily to do with death either, I decide. But realising that no matter what happens, no matter how significant the tearing away, There is a sameness and relentlessness to being in the world that reassures and chastens at the same time. Nothing ever really seems to change. The feral young woman I was then is standing on a veranda in the heat. Katie is there, grizzling through her recovery from a latest bout of tonsillitis. My mother is assuring me it's just a case of having cold feet and will pass. Ross is at home waiting for my call to tell him we would or would not go to Canada with him. A call I'm finding it hard to make uncertain about going after all, but reluctant to sabotage our grand plans. My next step would be to resign tomorrow, and it had become frightening to go ahead, which at this distance seems like a childish fork in the road, one that took us close to not living the life we are in, a loss I would regret with every cell of my being now. I remember dialing the number as if that moment sits beside the one I am in, parallel minutes ticking along side by side. I could grow lilies here as in a pot, have their white light to myself within these glass walls, a sunny space in the daytime, regardless of plunging temperatures. They could soak life into life here too, cup it, pool it in the depths of their ambiguous flowers, that single white furl of leaf-like petal, that unity which a lily seems to be. Um, Stop there. Mm -hmm. So tell me, why did you choose that particular selection to read? You know, because it sums up in a way or it's one of the passages that articulates what I was thinking about time, uh, you know, how they are parallel minutes ticking along side by side in a sense in our memories. 
um, mm. and how um, unexpectedly and randomly we harvest those kinds of memories. You know, they can be triggered by the most unexpected circumstances, just looking at the snow and so on. Yes, yeah. this this notion of nothing seems to change, and and yet there's change all throughout it, and and there's also constancy. Yes, um, and and a kind of um, a kind of effortful living in order to to achieve resilience. That kind of um, it, it's not it doesn't come naturally to everyone. Resilience, um, yeah. Mm. And, there are, and maybe sorry. It's okay, harvesting the memories too. Mm-hmm. That, that notion, that almost Proustian notion of, of tapping into the past yes. to, yes, give resonance to the present. Yes, which is the, the um, imagery of the Picassiette mosaics. Is, um, with that imagery, I'm trying to actually make precisely that point that um, it's, a kind of, it's a form of recomposition constantly. We were recomposing and reconfiguring um, our lives retrospectively. Yes, the Picassiette is a it's a lovely recurring theme too, and I guess it's a constant. It's a constant um, in Lilith's life as well, isn't it? Through once she has that breakdown, this craftsmanship. Yes, art, art as a form of um, redemption or something, reclamation, or certainly a way of um, making sense of time, mm. Give, yes. giving, it, giving it personal value. Yes, and you're, you're a craft person too. You work with stained glass and also do mosaic. Do, do you see a link between your different crafts? Uh, I do, although I really only started to do mosaics in the first place because I was researching for this character. I was thinking about how, how I, I know, know very little about the tactile experience of it. And so I started to do it and was completely enchanted <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and I'm now as much, much um, satisfied and gratified by doing that kind of thing as I am by writing, really. <laughs> so life imitates art. It did, it did. And it's, fact, it's, really a, it's, a, it's a fun insight, that, because most people assume it's the reverse. People who have only known me recently think it's the reverse, but it's not. Yes, and an interesting example, I suppose, of, you know, there must be something that drew you to this idea of the Picassiette and as being, a, I guess, a character quality. Her, her need to work with her hands. Yes, um, and I do think I've seen, uh, you know, in my life, you know, among friends and so on, um, very creative women who, who turn or, or not turn to in the sense of, sense of resorting to, but who discover an art form because they are in a situation where they're not able to express themselves in other ways, and then that becomes actually the raison d'être of their lives. That that becomes the thing that. They're very, very pleased to have discovered. Um, yes. So, and and, we, and you know, produced women who produced extraordinarily beautiful things in all sorts of yes. ways. You know. and, and in Lily's case, her craftsmanship grows out of her pain and and frustration. I suppose that that the same could be said. Um, of the whole notion of this novel, you know, the way that the pain and the frustration gives rise to something new. It opens doors. Mm, absolutely. And she, um, and she, this goes back to that idea of, of making an effort, of effortful living, of conscious living. She, uh, I try to at least sort of have her um, 
not give in to the pain and not give in, not not submit absolutely, to always find, she's always looking for and finding this other thing, this other, poss- you know, and other possibilities in the, the circumstances in which she finds herself. Yes, I, I love how it's the, the broken place yes, <laughs> that she puts that together that becomes art, an art form, um, and, and how that, that is in many ways, uh, I guess, a metaphor for, for life. Yes. Yes, it is. It is exactly that I think, Maggie, and it's a metaphor for a life because really, it isn't. It isn't. It, it isn't it, in one sense, it's lived continuously, purely chronologically, but it's not. It's also not lived continuously. Um, a, a very favourite writer of mine in Australia, um, Robert Desai, talks about life lived in arabesques and curly cues, and I think that's a, a wonderful way of describing the sort of pools of time that we find ourselves in depending on where we are or what our current circumstances might be. Yes, I love to say too. So tell me about the origins of the book. How did the story come together? How did the, the pieces of the broken plate come together into a novel for you? Um, it really, it began in, as a short story very early in 2004. And it was one of those things where you, you found yourself revisiting the idea. Um, and it was, so it became something I, I fiddled with, and it, it slowly grew. And then, and do you mean it in that way, in that sort of technical way, or? Yes, yes, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And um, and then it became a novella, and I thought st- I still had more to say. So each between each of these visitings would be a, you know t- great gaps of time, and then I decided no, I had to really engage with it because it was obviously a preoccupying idea. And so eventually it grew to to become a novel. Mm. And the story so itself, the impulse itself actually comes from a very vague childhood memory of a, the distress of a friend of my mother's. Um, so, you, you know, when you're a child and you observe the adults around you being upset, it somehow stalls itself very vividly in your imagination and your memory. And um, she had... Had a, I don't even really know the circumstances of her experience, but she had had a breakdown. And just hearing the women talk about her and around her, um, that stayed with me. So I think also that was also a very central impulse when I was doing the writing. How does a woman get to be in such distress that she becomes really destructive? Yes, and would you see that moment as the climax of the book too, the, the plate breaking and cutting? Mm-hmm. That, that mm. it is a kind of breakage. Yes. So the the book um, the book moves through place and time, and there are many places, a number of places anyway, and and there are many moments in time. Just talk to me a little bit about the tension between coming and going in the book. Um, yes. I I was struck when I lived in Canada for a long time, and when I was there, and I've also lived in places like South Korea and London. And each time I am struck by the ways in which places seem, they actually determine how, how we are, who we are, it seems to me. I'm very drawn to place um, as a subject to write about. And I, I don't know, the idea of, the idea of sort of the possibility of coexisting lives. One has one's life at home and then the life that you have if you're an expat, you, you, the life that you have in this place, you, you almost um, move between lives as you move between visits. Mm. And those d- 
differences in ways of being in the world, even the weather, Maggie, you know, the, the difference in the climates, how it determines what we wear and how much we can move, what access we have to the world, that kind of thing um, was just very interesting to me and how it um, even in some ways seemed to determine the, the personalities of people's personalities, yeah. And I think that at that level, it's a, an act of observation or attention to um, those differences. And I quite liked the idea of it being differences, subtle differences, so that she's not, Lilith is not facing the extreme challenges of a migration where she has to change languages, um, all of those things. In fact, people who do that astonish me that, that with their... Um, adaptability and their courage but I thought even at those very in that those very subtle ways there are differences that are very interesting to explore hmm. and I and even, even linguistic differences even though you're going English to English yes. there are obviously yes. differences in Dubai of course yes. and they're subtle but they're really significant hmm. and um, and I just yeah I just found them truly fascinating and that as far as the being here and there and the coming and going from place to place is concerned. I also think it it creates an emotional territory. You are in constantly in departure lounges, being wrenched away from one set of people or another. You are um, it's, it's a different sort of disconnected way of being in the world. I think, um, and not not in any sort of regrettable sense necessarily. In fact, I think uh, for myself, I think it's quite emancipating and. Um, and refreshing but for some people it's a nightmare and and they wrestle with it and struggle with it mm. and, and I suppose also there becomes a the, those departure lounges become a kind of constancy <laughs> if the, the stasis is the, tra is the journey and then the arrival is the transience it kind of puts things on their heads absolutely. doesn't it yes that's perfect <laughs> absolutely and then there's the notion of home, I suppose, as well. And, and I think that talks to what you were suggesting about um, the duality of the person who lives somewhere else, the migrant. Um, you know, there's the home, there's the place that Lilith comes from, and then there are the, the places that she lives in. And that home becomes, I guess, a, a place in time rather than a place in space. It does. I, I think it does. And I think, um, I think it brings about a kind of permanent restlessness a state of a state of uh, almost accustomed longing wherever you happen to be and I, I think you do become accustomed to it but it's not um, it's not a negligible feeling and a lot of people obviously live with it because global nomadism is very much the way we live these days mm. and, and of course Lilith's home is not a there's not a place that she can go back to. There's so much loss associated with it. There's no central place to go back and meet up with everyone because they're gone. That's right. She has to find another arabesque or curlicue. Or reach back for them and work with what, you know, her memories, I suppose. Yes. Yes. I to find them. And I think that goes back to the, to the question of art, um, finding satisfying a fruitful, creative way of spending time is really important in that mm. region of happiness and contentment and so on. 
Yes, which brings me to my next question, because Lilith is, a, is she's such an interesting character. She's very strong, um, very physically strong, very emotionally strong as she moves through these changes. Um, and yet her desires and her work always come second to Wilson's work. I mean, she's, you know, on the one hand, you almost don't feel that tension because she is part of the decision-making process. She's not dragged along with Ross's. Ross is soft, and he doesn't force her into these things. But she still ends up in this subservient position, which she sometimes rails against. So talk to me a little bit about the role of Ross's work and their relationship and what it means in the context of the story. In the, the story, really, are what, in my thinking, is the 70s and 80s, um, and then on into the 90s. But the background of it really is... is um, my sense of the structural difficulties for women in that context, um, which which pertain to visas um, and the kinds of constraints that are set up around the movement of families, which actually prevents partners, and usually in this in that case so far, and I'm sure it's still true, usually that's the women who are the ones who are constrained, and they're the part the male partner is moving because of his work. And what, ha- what happens is people enter this um, legal terrain which actually prevents them in all sorts of surprising ways from, from functioning freely the way they do in their homes. And I think, um, I, yeah, I, I have, have seen my friends in different places find that so difficult um, that that they have ended up at different, you know, people end up in choosing between furthering their own careers and reaching their own potential and following their dreams, or choosing between that and their marriages because they're not going to be able to do that if they stay where they are. And most people I've known end up choosing to stay and choosing to sort of battle with those constraints. But the battle is domestic. It's not, you, you know, there, there's, there's no battle to be had with. Um, with the legal system, with the national protection of labour, etc., etc., it's it's always an internal, interior, quiet battle that's played out over kitchen tables and so on. It seems to me, anyway. And I'm sure the situation is better now, but I also don't believe for a moment that it's um, it, that it's that people freely and equally move in families. Um, I think that. There's, when people, when there's a decision made to take a job, it's, it's clearly it's got to be. Well, I think in this story, I wanted it to be a mutual shared decision because um, I wanted that kind of personal equality between those two people. Um, yeah, that's all really. It's just that I just had this perception over and over again of how the structural constraints on that were attached to that labour movement were actually affecting the lived experience of one half of that family, one half of that couple. Yes, and yet it's in that it's in that constraint that she finds her freedom, too, though, yes. isn't it? I mean, yes. in some ways, the fact that she's unable to get the kind of job that you know really constrains Ross in many ways yes. frees Lilith yes. to do her art. Absolutely, absolutely, accidental contentment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about contentment, but certainly <laughs> accidental, uh, like, like accidental fulfillment, yes, perhaps. That's better, that's better, yeah. Yes, and and 
And above all, and I, I felt this very strongly, and I'm sure it's intended, although you, you handle it very subtly, um, above all, the love story is a very strong component of personal effects. Oh, that's great, because it's because it is. Mm. I, I didn't want it to be just a kind of um, you, you versus me sort of story. I wanted to, to try and tease out the ways in which as couples, as pairs, as partners, people tease these difficulties um, through and try to disentangle themselves from them in all sorts of creative ways. And I think that's, that's to do with love. I mean, I, yes, I think that's probably the um, single sort of motivating influence in the novel. It's a kind of major impulse, really. Yes, and, and love over a long period of time. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say a, a mature love, love that that happens over a period of time rather than just that, you know, initial impetus. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, a, a real, it's a, it's a, a real relationship, um, parallel lives working through the whole story together. And, um, and I was going to just say the other thing about that is that I have this. Um, I'm attracted to the idea, sort of Virginia Woolf idea. You know, so much of life is lived in our heads. We don't just move from action to action and event to event. We think our way through life. And uh, this is a very interior novel, and m most of the time she's actually inhabiting silence. And I think I, I was really interested in what's going on in those moments of solitude and, and that, in, in somehow trying to map that process. Um, and so the, her feelings for her husband and the reasons why she is where she is and in the situation she's in ha would have to be a really sort of significant part of that thinking. Yes. So, so talk to me about the structure then. Now, we have the first-person narratives of Ross and the first-person narratives of Lily plus, uh, of Lilith plus Lilith's journal fragments. Um, just tell me a little bit about the structure of the book and how how you came up with it. And well, I I didn't want a linear narrative, and I was interested in this notion of time and the kind of um, experience of coexisting moments in our memories. And so I arrived at this notion of mosaics, and I was actually trying to enact in a way in writing the same kind of surface or texture that a mosaic surface has and I think um, you know I have, I have absolutely no idea how well that works really it, that, but that was artistically that was what I wanted to do and to actually play with this idea that um, we are that it is a form of recomposition constantly rearranging and reconfiguring as we um, remember certain bits and pieces of life I, yeah I, and I did when I began the writing have her in the in the third person and then and I think I did that because I was trying to deflect the question of how autobiographical the work is and I, it was a kind of I was playing it safe and then I thought it is an interior novel. There's no, I, I was losing too much. And people talk actually about how limiting the first person is. But because I, but I was feeling the limitations of the third person, because I couldn't get that access 
um, to her thinking. So when I, when I moved into the first person, I actually felt this kind of almost spatial sense of how far in I could go with, uh, with contemplative writing mm. and, and giving myself permission to have that sort of um, contemplative strand running through it. And yeah, so the interesting, yeah, the interesting thing about the journal fragments is that they're all in, you know, they're all in the present, but they're in the past. So that that's a, quite a nice little piece to come in there as well um, with this cyclical Yes, mm. that's right. And and I, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Ginny Wolf because I did think about the waves too and these multiple voices and, and Mrs. Dalloway to a certain yeah. extent too, right? To the lighthouse. Yeah, to the lighthouse too. You know, the events. I mean, deaths happen in parentheses. The actual quality of life is being lived in thought and processing of what's going on around us and so on. I, I really love that interiority. I think it's wonderful. I, I love the 19th century novelists too. Um, people like Thomas Hardy and Dickens and so on. And I wanted that richness of language. I wanted permission to... to to use language in that way, um, but I, but the interiority of, of the Virginia Woolf kind of thinking, I I find it really quite wonderful. Mm. And the celebration, perhaps too, of the domestic, of, of those interior moments, and and what happens, uh, as you mentioned, you know, having these these sort of big. Uh, I almost hate to use the word, but these big sort of masculine events um, happening in parentheses, where the real action is in in that interior monologue, as we, you know, our character's arc happens. Absolutely. It's inside. Mm. Absolutely, and and to actually let the writing be a kind of noticing of that, um, to method. And I I was, you know, I don't know. It's, it's all quite intuitive, really, isn't it? In the end, but it, that's what I thought I was doing. Yes. So, um, and what project is on your plate or horizon um, that you're you're working on now? Most excited about? <laughs> um, I've just spent two days at a poetry workshop. I'm I'm trying to put together a. Po I have a lot of poetry, and I'm putting together a manuscript now. Um, I tend to be too spread across too many things at once. So I'm also trying to work on a, working, I am working on a collection of personal essays. I meet with a couple of other women who write and we're working on that kind of form. Um, and a very tentative, time poor beginning at a second novel. So those three things really. But at the moment, the poetry manuscript is the thing I have to concentrate on. And is there an overarching theme for that? Or the two uh, yes. Well, the reason really that I'm preoccupied with the poetry manuscript at the moment is that I have a lot of poetry which is in fact about travel, about movement, global movement, and about and, and in fact going back to what we were saying before about place. And because I've just published the novel, it seems like a good time to actually see whether there's anything in that work. You know, whether I should be pulling that work together, and and it's because it seems related, and then I'll get that off my plate. Mm. And do you feel like there's a, a connection between the poetry and the prose, that, that there are maybe different sides of the brain? <laughs> I, I do, actually. I really do. And the poetry... Um, the poetry is a kind of... 
it's a more economical way of processing the thought, you know, for me. It's, it's, um, it's like a dense, condensed moment that I can capture and I can think, I can think, well, I've at least recorded that. Um, whereas the novel was a much more, um, capacious, time consuming process that I, um, really, I rambled around in for a long time. <laughs> so, yeah. But the poetry certainly, certainly there's poetry that has related themes and I think I'd really like to pull that out and, and clean it up and tidy it up and say, well, I've, I've said what I want to say about that. Mm, wonderful. So where can readers go then to get hold of a copy of Personal Effects or find out more about you or your work? Um, it's, it's available in most of the bookshops here in Melbourne and in Perth. I understand. I'm assuming from the public what the publisher tells me. Um, I suppose online. I don't know, really, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Search up your name, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think the UWE um, website is a good place, is any? Okay. So um, that's all we have time for today. 30 minutes will go so fast. Carmel, thank you so much for chatting with me today. And listeners, don't forget that you can subscribe to the show as a podcast via iTunes or directly from the Blog Talk Radio site. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. Bye, Maggie.